Please turn in your Bibles to the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, Savior of the world. I see a lot of faces here that I don't know, which makes me really happy. <laughs> Welcome. I'm glad you're here. I'm Pastor Steve, and it's a joy for me to get up every Sunday and preach in this pulpit. Um, we've been going for about 14 years and been in this building for about six or seven, I believe. And so um, it's just a joy to welcome you to our service today. Beginning in Luke chapter 2, I'd just like to read the story to you. My sermon this morning, I mean, yeah, unless you've preached, you just don't know the struggles preachers go through when we're preparing sermons. And I really struggled. What will I do for, it's, it's a big day. And the Lord kept bringing me back to chapter 2 of Luke. And I said, that, everybody knows that, Lord. <laughs> we have those conversations, and we really do. And, and I just want to tell you, this morning it's going to be about the birth of Jesus Christ. That's it. Not, not a whole lot, a lot, lot of shine and glow and everything. It's just going to be about the birth of Jesus Christ. Because it is so amazing. It truly is. So let's just look at it as the Word of God says. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, if you're calling it up on your phone. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. And this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. So Joseph went up from Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, And laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Christ means Messiah. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about 
this child. And all who heard wondered at the things which were told by them and by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Let's pray. Father, as we contemplate this simple story that's so familiar about the birth of Jesus Christ, we are amazed. And I pray, God, that you'd open up our hearts to just hear the story afresh, to think of the implications contained in this story, Lord, and that our hearts might be moved today, as only your Holy Spirit can move hearts of people. And Lord, we commit our time into your hands now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the very first thing that I want to talk about is the providence of a sovereign God. Sovereign means that he's over all. Very first sentence, and in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. How amazing is it If you just stop and consider that, God's providence was working through a pagan ruler to cause the whole inhabited world to participate in a census so that Joseph and Mary would have to go up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. And as the text in Luke tells us, God in his sovereignty orchestrated the affairs on this earth to perfectly fit and carry out his plan conceived before the foundation of the world. I don't know if you've ever thought about it like that before. But it gives us pause to think, what else is he doing like that right now? In a moment, I'm going to talk to you about Bethlehem, the the little town of Bethlehem in Israel. Canceled Christmas this year. Utterly canceled Christmas this year. What is God doing? What is God doing? You know, he's not just God here thousands of years ago. He's God now, right now. In John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 1, it speaks plainly. It says, in the beginning, the Word, the Word, it was. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. I said that this sovereign plan was set into motion before the foundation of the world. This is what I'm talking about. Before the beginning... Before anything ever was, God had already put into place this plan of redemption. If you follow in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word, again, became flesh. And there we have it. Incarnate. He took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. From before the beginning. God the Father, in his sovereignty, and Jesus Christ, the Son, and the Holy Spirit planned the entire story of redemption. And with the birth of Jesus, a truly wonderful fruition came to pass. 
and the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, dwelt amongst us. You know, in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, God was not in heaven going, oh my gosh, what are we going to do now? I mean, can you even imagine that? It's, it's silly, right? Uh, he had it all figured out, all prepared for before the foundation of the world. Now, in the pristine beauty of that Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve dwelt and communed with their creator God in the cool of the afternoon. And every need was met, surpassed imagination. I mean, we all have needs. Theirs were all met by their father who created them. Until, until in a moment they ruined it all. Just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And so, death spread to all men. Why? Because all sin, all men sin. Yet even in the face of our first parents' rebellion and sin, Yahweh put that old serpent, Satan, on notice. And he told them this, quote, this is in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he will bruise you on the head, and you will bruise him on the heel. Now, referred to as the first blush of the gospel, this is the first instance where the gospel and prophecy and the struggle and its outcome between your seed, Satan, and unbelievers, who are called the devil's children in John 8.44, and her seed, which is Christ, a descendant of Eve, and those who are in him, those who believe in him, it began in the garden. It started right there. And in the midst of the curse passage, a message of hope shone forth. The woman's offspring called he is Christ, who will one day defeat the serpent, who is Satan. But Satan could only bruise Christ's heel because he would cause him only to suffer. Well, Christ will bruise Satan's head and destroy him with a fatal blow. <laughs> a lot going on way back then, isn't there? And the Apostle Paul says that this way. He says, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. That's in Romans 16.20, New Testament passage. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Now we, as believers, should understand that we participate in the crushing of Satan. Because along with our Savior, and because of his finished work on the cross, we also are of the woman's seed. We are in Christ, Ephesians tells us. So from the very before the world even began time, God was already at work. And then in the garden, we see him prophesying that one would come. Now, he also worked through the patriarchs and through kings in the Old Testament. To Abraham, 
Reading a bit further on in chapter 12, we come to the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that God made to Abraham. A unilateral promise, incidentally, meaning that Abraham had nothing to do with carrying it out. Only God would carry this promise out. And God told Abraham, and in you, Abraham, all families of the earth will be blessed, and to your seed, to your seed, I will give this land. Oh, it's still being disputed last time I checked the papers. Now, Paul exposited this text for us in Galatians 3.16. I love it when the scriptures exposit themselves. Saves me a lot of time. Okay? So God promised Abraham, he said, to your seed I will give this land. And then Paul opens that up for us in Galatians 3.16. He says this, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And then he says, He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. And then just in case we're really dense, Paul continues to say, that is, Christ. (laughs) So don't ever assume that everybody understands what you're saying. Make it explicit, exposit it, open it up. And Paul did that. So when God was telling Abraham to his seed he would give this land, he was saying to Christ, to Christ. Now, he also used the kings to talk about this coming one. In Psalm 110.1, we read, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And you say, so what's that got to do with anything? Well, I'm going to tell you. In Jesus' day, it's in actually in Mark 12, if you want to take it down. In Mark 12, the scribes asked, how can he say that the Christ is the son of David? And Jesus answered by quoting this verse. What, what's that mean? Well, Jesus is pointing out that the Messiah, who he was, is, who is the son of David, is also much more because he is one to whom God himself gives the title of deity, Lord. And, in other words, the Messiah is truly man and truly God. He told them right there. They understood him. They understood him. Augustine said this, quote, Christ is both David's son and David's Lord. David's Lord always. David's son in time. David's Lord, born of the substance of his father. David's son, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Ghost. I mean, that preaches, that, just that quote from Spurgeon, we could go for a week with that. And so we see the coming of this promised one was announced through biblical history from before the foundation of the world in the garden and by patriarchs and kings. But the Old Testament prophets were probably the loudest spokespeople for the coming of this Messiah. The greatest of these prophets, Isaiah, makes amazing prophecies about the birth of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned uh, in my prayer earlier, 700 years before Christ was born, 
In Isaiah 7.14, we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Yahweh himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And miracle of miracles, 700 years after these words, Matthew, the gospel writer, laid this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed or engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. A virgin was found to be with child. Do I understand this? Mm -mm. I only understand what the word of God says. It's very clear. In Isaiah 9, 6, uh, a passage that Michael read earlier, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now that's something that really spoke to me in the fall of 1973. Prince of Peace. Man, my heart was in such turmoil. I just couldn't get satisfied with anything. But he is the Prince of Peace. And there'll be no end to the increase of his government or peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, and an angel told Mary this, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Yeshua, Savior. But Mary said to the angel, how on earth can this possibly be since I am a virgin? And, and here's the clincher. Here's how we understand it. By faith. The angel answered her and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The virgin birth. It's miraculous. It only happened once. I don't think it will ever happen ever again. In Micah 5, 2, another prophet foretold the very place that Messiah would be born. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth is from everlasting from the foundation of the world. That's what that from everlasting means. From the ancient days before the foundation of the world. And of course, from our perspective, we have in our New Testament confirmation that Jesus Christ was indeed born in the little town of Bethlehem. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, some wise men appeared before the king and they asked the king, King Herod, where's this king of the Jews? Um, we, we have read a prophet of yours that says, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a leader who will shepherd my people, Israel. Bethlehem. How God miraculously worked through a census for the whole world to go back to their own cities, and so Joseph and Mary ended up in Bethlehem. Are you getting a picture? This is way bigger. This is way bigger than our own puny little needs. My lack of peace in my heart. And I'm grateful that he saved me. But, but it's so much bigger than me. So much bigger than you. 
God is doing something. He's restoring what he originally created. And he has begun through salvation of individuals that believe in his Savior, his Son that he sent. And so we're back to the incredible providence of the supreme God who is sovereign over everything, the creator. And he's orchestrating so much in the world as he pursues his plan of redemption. Now, it's not a mistake that you're here today, even though your girlfriend or your wife probably brought you, or maybe your husband or your boyfriend probably brought you, or some relative that is a Jesus freak brought you. It's okay. It's okay. This stuff is for real. I'm going on 50 years, 50 years of belief in Jesus Christ, and it is new every morning. I went to Indonesia for 20 years. I grew up on the east side of St. Paul, right? A few blocks from here. And he brought me all the way over to Indonesia to preach this good news to a group of primitive tribal people who ended up getting saved, who ended up planting a church who ended up planting seven more churches. And then he brought me back here in my old age and had me plant a church in St. Paul of all places. Unbelievable. What's God doing? What's God doing in your life? Why are you here today? (laughs) There are no mistakes. No mistakes. Now there's a bit of an element of surprise in, in this story, which I really love actually. Um, a Jewish man, Alfred Edersheim, that sounds Jewish, right? Bet you he's got the glasses too, you know? He's the author of The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, which is a great big thick book, but it's really excellent. It's well written. And in there, he recounts how no Jewish tale from their own imagination would ever have conceived of such a story as the birth of Jesus Christ the Messiah. He says this, quote, For if it were the outcome of Jewish imagination, where's the basis for it in contemporary expectations? Translated, that means no Jews would have ever thought this thing up. Because nothing had ever taken place like this, and nothing in their history would they ever come up with these kind of stories. They just did not come up with these stories. Because would Jewish legend have ever presented Messiah as born in a stable? No. To which chance circumstances had consigned his mother? There is no room in the end. And the whole current of Jewish opinion would run in contrary direction. If the Jews were imagining this and making a story up, they would have had him be born with fanfare and all sorts of things going on. For popular Jewish legend, ever to seek to surround their heroes was with a halo of glory uh, and, and, and that their attempt to supply details which were otherwise wanting. They want to fill in all the details in their stories. And in both these respects, one sharply marked contrast would scarcely be presented than in the gospel narrative. Jewish imagination, fanfare, big deal, Messiah is born. Actual reality, he's born in a manger in a little town called Bethlehem. Quite a contrast. Quite a contrast. 
I'll choose only two instances where such contrast brings an element of surprise to the account of the birth of Jesus. The first is there's no room in the inn. <laughs> no room in the inn. So they get all the way to Bethlehem. You'd think God would figure this out, right? There should be a place to stay. And he's born, it's said, in a cave where animals were kept. Well, well some have pointed out that the word that is actually used in the, in the Bible for in, I-N-N, that that word actually does not refer to a place for public lodging, like we would think, an inn. It's the same word that in other places in the Bible, it's translated into the English guest room, or one that you might be more familiar with, upper room. It's where Jesus actually had his last supper, an upper room. Okay? Because many of the private homes would have one room set aside as a guest room. And so the story would go, if that's the reasoning here, that when Mary and Joseph came to this home, which I've read that it could have been a relative's home, that it was already full. The guest room was already full. And so they said, there's no room left here. But what they did do is they didn't put her out in a cave. There were no barns. What they did do is they said, you can stay down in the area where we keep our, our most precious animals, okay? In the night, they'd bring them into their house in a lower room, ground level, and they would let their animals stay there because he was in a manger. So that's one interpretation. We don't know. This is, this is like... There's no details. Come on, we need more, right? The more important fact that we should consider here is not necessarily whether it was a cave, a barn, or a lower level in a private home, but it was obscure. It was not a big deal. And therein, the emphasis, Jesus, the king of peace, was born in obscurity, No fanfare, no great celebrations where most important people thronged to see the birth. It was low-key as any birth could ever be, unadorned. What a surprise. But God foretold it years and years and years, hundreds of years beforehand. The second surprise is that it was announced to shepherds. I understand that there's all sorts of research on how shepherds were tending the temple sacrificial lambs and and how it had to be in the spring of the year. So Jesus really wasn't born in December, had to be born in, you know, February or March. And, oh, man. Wrangling seems to be part of the heritage of biblical scholars. Part of my job as your pastor is sorting through all the wrangling and trying to come up with just what's the truth here? What's the truth here? Randy Elkhorn's an author that I really enjoy. If you've never read Randy Elkhorn, just buy his book, Heaven, and you'll enjoy Randy very much. He shares some interesting facts about shepherds at that time, and I think it helps us to kind of recenter our thinking about the shepherds being the first ones to hear Christ first. Uh, quote, smug religious leaders maintained a strict caste system. They were really prejudiced back in these days, really prejudiced. And this caste system was at the expense of shepherds and other common folk. Shepherds were officially labeled sinners. Now, 
you know, you can call somebody, oh, he's, he's really a sinner. It doesn't mean much now. But back then, it really did. It was a technical term for a class of despised people, despicable people. And the Mishnah, which is Judaism written record of the oral law, so it's not really the Bible, it's not canon, but it is actually the written uh, record of the oral law. It reflects the same prejudice referring to shepherds in belittling terms. One passage describes them as incompetent. Another says no one should ever feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who has fallen into a pit. You don't get much more despicable than that. <laughs> you fall in a pit and people walk past, oh, that's just a shepherd. Leave him be. <laughs> Unbelievable. In Jerusalem, in the time of Jesus, Jeremiah wrote, writer, Jewish writer, the rabbis ask with amazement how in view of the despicable nature of shepherds, one can explain why God was called my shepherd in Psalm 23. They had problems interpreting that. Why would he be called my shepherd? What an affront to the religious leaders who were so conspicuous and, and just completely left off the mail list, right? They didn't get the invite, None of them did. Even from birth, Christ moved among the lowly, and I'm so glad he did. Not many wives, not many famous. He goes to people that are hurting, people that really need him, like those tribal people that we went to. They accepted him with open arms and have followed him now for over 35 years. Amazing. But that's the way the Lord works. The figure of a shepherd is elevated, though, in the life of the church. Ever since Jesus was born, that term shepherd took on new meaning. The figure of shepherd is heralded by Jesus himself when he said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And Christ also called the great shepherd in the book of Hebrews or the chief shepherd in, in 1 Peter Shepherd is getting a a remodel. The brand is changing. The New Testament portrays the shepherd as the one who shows a tender and caring hand toward the sheep of his pasture. And, And so God showing such grace to the shepherds in the night of Christ's birth is foreshadowing his plans for a future. And while bringing an element of surprise to the birth of Christ, It begins to make sense as we track the history of shepherds in the New Testament. So much going on here, folks. And so two surprises. One, that he's born in such such obscurity. And, And number two, that the shepherds were the ones that actually heard of his birth first. Now I want to talk about incredible joy of this day that we call Christmas, that we're going to be celebrating tomorrow. Where's all the wonder in a world that's filled with such turmoil? I mean, I can't hardly even turn on the news anymore. I don't know where you people are at, but maybe once a week. It's just the names change, city names change, same stuff going on. As I mentioned, breaking news just yesterday. Presently, Christmas has been canceled in the city of Bethlehem in Israel. Joel Rosenberg wrote yesterday, There are no tourists because of the war, and added military checkpoints make it difficult for those to live in Israel to travel through the region. And since Bethlehem is where Messiah was born, it's hard to imagine people 
not celebrating Christmas there. But Bethlehem now is mostly Muslim, and Christian population there is dwindling. Even in Nazareth, in this Israeli city in northern Galilee, um, the continuing hostage situation and the deaths of loved ones in recent months and weeks have overshadowed the holiday. In the Holy Land, only about 2% of the population are Christians. And less than 1% are evangelical Christians who believe in the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. How utterly devastating that even the Holy Land, along with the rest of the world, has turned away from God. Turned their back on God. The result, God told us, would be that love would grow cold. Love would grow cold. And people would say, where's the promise of his coming? That's a, that's a fairy tale. Jesus Christ, all that stuff, you believe that stuff? He's not coming back. I'm telling you what, it's prophesied in Peter that people will say, where's the promise of his coming? <laughs> You're fulfilling prophecy if you think like that. Thank you. Far from repeating the worn-out cliche, Jesus is the reason for the season, although he is, I want to take a, a fresh look at the fact that God has come into this world in flesh. God has materialized himself and revealed himself in flesh so we could relate to him. And this is the wonder of this season, Christmas, okay? Jesus Christ, listen to this, came out of eternity and into time. Jesus Christ came out of heaven, out of eternity and into time, and we will come out of time and go into eternity because of him. Now, remaining what he was... He became what he was not. I'm not using double talk here. This is very important that you understand this concept. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. While Jesus continued being what he was, fully divine in every way, God, he then became what he was not, fully human in every way. And Jesus did not give up any of his deity when he became a man, because that's not what emptying himself means in Philippians chapter 2. It says there that he emptied himself. That is not what that phrase means. But wonder of wonders, he did take on humanity, which was not his before. And you do realize that Jesus, after he raised from the dead, after three days, that he met with his disciples for some time, and then he ascended back into heaven... And he was in a glorified body. That's a physical body that's been glorified. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father now in his glorified body. And the angel that corrected his disciples that were standing there with their mouths open and said, why stand ye there gazing? Why not? I mean, he just went up into a cloud. Are you kidding me? And they said, he'll return in the same way that he has left. Well, where's, where's the promise of his coming? I want you to take down three verses that speak of Christ's incarnation where he took on flesh. Real simple ones. John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14. First John 4.2. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that, Jesus Christ has become in the flesh and he is from God. And the third verse is Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the set time 
had fully come, the fullness of times, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He became flesh. God became flesh. Now I want you to take down these three verses that speak of Christ as God. We just saw three verses, just simple verses, that talk about him as being a human. Now he is God. John 1.1. The word theos, God, is used of Jesus, where it says, the word was theos, God. The word there in John chapter 1 is You just follow it through if you read John chapter 1, and you'll see that the word is Jesus Christ. He is God. In John chapter 20, verse 28, when Thomas finally got the big picture after the resurrection, remember he missed the first one because he wasn't there, and the second time that Jesus appeared to them after his resurrection, Thomas was there, and he realized Jesus is God. He's, he's raised from the dead, and he said, my Lord and my God, my God. And the third verse is Romans 9, 5. Christ, who is over all, God blessed forever. So those are just three verses that show his, his humanity and three verses that show his divinity. Now make note of Jesus establishing his deity by claiming divine Attributes, eternality. Jesus said this, before Abraham was, I am. Present tense. (laughs) He always has been, okay? Omniscience. When he told Nathaniel that his thoughts were, what his thoughts were when he was under the tree before he even met him, he knew that he did not believe in him, and therefore he didn't commit himself to them. And his disciples said of him, now we know that you know all things. He's omniscient. Divine sovereignty is displayed in that he forgave people's sins. He, he said of himself that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then immortality is but one more divine attribute seen in John 10, where Jesus said of his own death and resurrection, destroy this temple, meaning his body, and in three days I will raise it up. And then again he said, I laid down my life, that I may take it up again because I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it back up. Now, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, is fully God and fully man. And in his voluntary death on the cross, he became the satisfaction for our sins. That's what he came to earth to do. The wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible, if, if that's not true, what I just said is not true, then the Bible is filled with lies because that's exactly what the Bible says. And if that's not true also, then our sins cannot be forgiven. We're not forgiven for our sins. But it is true, and God doesn't lie, and the Bible and his word does not lie. And whoever believes in him will have eternal life and will not perish. And so this Christmas... This Christmas, tomorrow, don't allow yourselves to be possessed by the world's definitions of Christmas. Promising you all the things the world is so good at promising, but utterly incapable of delivering. Instead, focus your thoughts on the birth of Jesus Christ when God took on flesh 
and came to dwell with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And humble yourself enough to say, if all this stuff is true, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to come into my life and run it because I'm not doing so good. It's not hard to be humble if you just take a good look at yourself. We're all sinners falling short of the glory of God. But that's why Christ came, and he restores that life. Prince of Peace brings peace, helps you start putting things back together the way they're supposed to be. And that's my, that's my Christmas gift for you today. It's, it's a, a gift called the good news, the gospel. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, you won't go to hell, but you'll have eternal life. So let this Christmas be a really special Christmas for you if you haven't trusted him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you came and that you are the bringer of good news, the news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He didn't come for healthy people. He didn't come for people that didn't need him. He came for those of us who are needy. And every sinner that's ever trusted in him is only just a forgiven sinner, nothing more. Oh God, thank you for your word that tells us the truth. May it bore down into our hearts and bring fruit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.